back to the School of Science Radio. My name is Gino Ganello. I'm joined by Chris and Adam once again, and it is December 23rd, 8.22 p.m. at time of recording, and I'd say that this is officially rock bottom for us Everton fans and Everton mm. Is it is it really rock bottom? Are we really willing to commit to rock bottom with three games in the next week? Just wait until we lose another one nil to Burnley after being like up a man for sixty minutes. That is the funny thing about rock bottom is you never really know when you've actually hit it, and we could well be still on our way. Well, to, to Gino's point, though, it's a pretty bad weekend. Um, yeah. Just outside of getting our our asses absolutely whooped by Spurs, um, pretty much every team around us in the table won. And so we dropped to 11th. We also lost our positive goal differential in just one fell swoop. Um, Andre Gomes went off injured. Uh, a, a non-contact knee injury. Um, you know, yeah, you know. Casual. Those have ever been problematic before. You know, those are never a problem. Never. Never. We were just talking about we were just talking about guys on IR in football, and most of them have non-contact knee injuries that are never a problem, right? Yeah, yeah no, yeah, nothing to see here, folks. Nothing at all. Uh, but I mean, this game. I mean, if it isn't rock bottom, it certainly felt like it. With that, just it was just you go up, and and we'll we'll go through different points, but we go up one nothing. Uh, things are feeling good. Dominic Calvert-Lewin puts a goal in the net that's disallowed, and then all of a sudden, things just fall apart. And and I mean, I don't know what you guys thought, uh, but we'll we'll, I'll, 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 we'll figure that out right now, I guess. Chris, we'll start with you. What point did this match go from? Okay, this is looking all right to the disaster that it ended up being. Uh, so to answer your question, I think basically when um, Jordan Pickford had a seizure and decided he was going to run into Kurt Zuma and just plant the ball on Hungman's son's foot. Um, I, going a little bit before that, though, I just wanted to, since I have this labeled on our outline as the first point, just a venting session, um, Davinson Sanchez is a giant baby. That's true. That is true. He's a very, very good defender, but uh, whew, it's really, it must be tough to be that big but still get blown over by the slightest breeze. I I mean let's Dominic Calvert Lewin also a pretty big guy but like is a little bit of a a love tap in the back if you will and Sanchez just flops like a fish that just jumped out of the goldfish bowl and yeah and that really is when it started to go downhill Spurs kind of felt that they had the quote unquote mystical momentum and it it wasn't any good from there afterwards even though Gilfie got a late meaningless nice goal. Yeah. You know, I think that my my sense, even after we had the early goal, um, and I even said this to Chris while the match was going on, that it was very open. It was an open match from the start. There were chances for team for both teams, um, and, and you felt like, <laughs> especially with no Ghana in the lineup, if if it stayed as open as it was. Eventually, something was going to fall for Spurs. Uh, obviously, you would not have expected it to be in the manner that it was um, with with the obvious mistake that led to that goal. But I, I think the idea that, you know, that it was only after that moment that Spurs really started 
generating chances and, and getting on the ball a little bit is probably a little bit misguided because the match was open up to that point too. And we had just happened to, to get the best chance and, and convert it. But I don't think I ever felt like, oh, you know, this is a match that, that we're going to be able to slow things down now that we have a lead. It just never felt that way. Well, you mentioned Ghana and, and taking his place today was Tom Davies. It, how important or how much did Ghana's absence really, really affect us? And Adam, we'll go to you on this first. And why is Davies just not getting it at this point? Why is he not seeming to fit in well and, and just not playing well at all uh, when he does replace uh, Ghana in that midfield? So I, I think even before you think about um, Davison for, for Ghana and Ghana missing, I, I think it's important to, to note that Mauricio Pochettino kind of, um, he made a little bit of a gamble in this one because he basically, he threw four central midfielders, pretty much true central midfielders in Christian Eriksen, Deli Alley, um, Musa Sissoko, and Harry Winks uh, into a diamond in the center of the field and, and left the wide areas exposed, which is where you know Marco Silva wants to play most of the game. And he basically said, I'm going to let you have that, and I'm going to trust that once my guys get on the ball and we can work the ball through the center of the midfield, you're not going to have an answer for us. Um, and he was right. <laughs> I mean, and I think the, the result you know, speaks to that. And obviously Everton created a couple of good chances from the wide areas because it, there was space uh, to the outside of that midfield diamond for Spurs um, that we could operate in. And that's how the first goal got scored. You know, Richarlison and, and Dom combined down the left and, and found Theo. But once Spurs got going, there was just no answer in the middle, A, because of the numbers game. It was basically, you know, a 4v2 or a 4v3 if Gilfie dropped deep. And then B, Tom Davis is just not as responsible a defensive player as Adrisa Gay is. And it was blatantly obvious pretty much from the off in this one. Yeah, and and people will, like, excuse Davis's play away by saying that he's a better passer than Ghana, which is just not the case. And if you look at his pass map today, the percentage looks okay. The problem is that he has zero passes completed into the attacking third. And uh, that's just not good enough. Is The problem is that it's not good enough when you're also not offering any of the defensive contributions that Ghana does. Ghana could get away with being a subpar passer because he's doing literally everything else. Tom can't. Yeah, you know, and it's it's important to you know to to note with Ghana that I mean among guys who uh, do what he does um, in in terms of of winning the ball in the midfield and breaking up attacks and being able to use that to spring the counter even if he's not the one necessarily playing the killer pass he's the one that gets the ball and finds Andre Gomes who's then the guy to to spring it that there isn't really anybody better than Idrissa at doing that, whose name isn't N'Golo Conte. Um, and, and I I certainly get on Ghana about his passing from, from time to time, um, and I know others do as well. But at the end of the day, what he is good at, he's, he's more than just good at. He's friggin' elite. You know, there's maybe – there's only one player better at winning the ball in the midfield that I'm willing to commit definitely to, and it's N'Golo Conte. 
which is uh, and that's which pretty is elite pretty, company. Yeah, that's that's fine. And really, that this is how you build a, a competent midfield, right? You don't have to have three guys who are all. Arturo Vidal in his prime or Paul Pogba, you can have one guy who's good at this and then Gomez who's good at another thing and Gilfie who's good at the third thing. And that makes a coherent setup. The problem is that uh, today Tom was good at no things. Yeah. Hmm. You know, and, and I think that ultimately we, we, I say we, but really Marco Silva um, needs to, to have a, discussion with himself and, and his staff and the team and figure out, you know, what is plan B if Ghana can't play, um, you know, against, against city, it was to go to a back five, um, which I understood given the opponent, um, but it didn't work out. And then today, I think we certainly saw why his preference in the game against city was to go to a back five because we saw Tom Davis struggle so much today and get beaten off ball so frequently um, that, you know, City would have just ripped him apart. So uh, Chris and I discussed this um, earlier in the day uh, that James McCarthy's return uh, to health uh, may, may well be crucially timed if Ghana is going to miss any more time because the slash gets uh, sold to PSG. Next well, uh, let's just not even. <laughs> well, the, I, I'm probably the biggest James McCarthy hater on our website. And, that is true. Factually uh, true. Yeah, it, it's it's a problem I have personally. But uh, James is still uh, – and maybe check me here to see if I'm exaggerating in the wake of today's performance. But I feel like James is uh, moderate to significant margin better defensively than Tom is. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. I don't think that there's any uh, – you agree, Gino? No, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I mean, I think the one thing that McCarthy brings is that, that style of – it's kind of like a, a a bully in some sense, you know, where he – you know, he, when he's when he's back there, he's kind of flying around defensively. And, you know, mm-hmm. while he may throw in his harsh slide tackles and whatnot, um, he does a good job defensively, um, I think. Uh, and, well, and and I just trust trust James to stay home. He He is another one of those players who understands his limitations a lot better than Tom does. Yeah. yeah, and let's you know this is something that I, I think we collectively, as in you know the three of us and the the folks of us who who write for Royal Blue Mercy, but also uh, Everton supporters as a whole, forget that you know the the best season that Everton's had in in recent memory was was 2013-14 when the team finished fifth, and I mean the guy who was really the midfield fixture on that team was James McCarthy. Um, now, the Premier League in the five years since then uh, has gotten a lot better. Uh, so, uh, you know, I don't think even that James McCarthy is as useful a force on, on uh, this team, uh, even if you take away the injuries. But he's a useful player when utilized properly. In, in, in those days, it was alongside Gareth Barry. Uh, now it would, God willing, Andre's injury isn't, serious it would be alongside Andre Gomes and you could see how there could be a, a fit there or at least a better fit than what we've seen with with Tom yeah and with with Ghana it's we don't know what's going to happen with him we don't know how how long he's out but 
Uh, he does bring, and, and you know, we talk, we talk about this week in, week out, that pressing style. He, you know, he wins those balls in the midfield. And, and McCarthy, um, he can win balls in the midfield too, and he's probably the that better option uh, than Davies. But obviously still we're hoping that Ghana's return to health is, is a quick one uh, due to the fact that, that he has been so important to that midfield and does the things that he does well very, very well. And, and um, let's just uh, just to, to wrap up on, on this thought with, with Ghana, I, I don't see any world in which Everton sells him this January. And I, I do genuinely believe that PSG is interested um, because that would be a, a good fit. They need a player who can do the sort of stuff that he does. And it's A, it's hard to find those players at all. B, it's almost impossible to find those kind of players in January who are not cup tied in the Champions League. So among midfielders who are not already, who have not already appeared for a different team in the Champions League, which is what PSG is really going to care about, Ghana is almost assuredly um, the best option available. But I, I can't see any scenario in which Everton would acquiesce to a sale there. Yeah, the thing about that rumor is, and this is kind of what I normally use to to kind of gauge its validity, it's coming from both French sources and English sources now which makes me think that there is legitimacy to it. The thing is that the English sources are like, Everton do not want to do this. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I can't imagine any reason why they would. I, I can't imagine Brands – I mean, Brands uh, and, and Silva and everybody up there know how important Ghana is to this team, and, and they would need a replacement for him immediately, which would cost them a significant amount of money in the January transfer window, um, and and that would be – uh, it, it would be detrimental to the team if we couldn't get anybody to replace them, and we did sell them. So I think we all agree that we we won't be seeing that in January. But moving on to more of the game, and, and we'll start with the first goal, the Pickford-Zuma fiasco that led to uh, their uh, Tottenham's uh, first goal, uh, and that was um, the, 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 the Sun goal that was floated in after Pickford and Zuma collided. And I want to know from you guys, Chris, we'll go to you on this. Who do you blame for that? Is it Pickford's fault? Is it Zuma's fault? I've I've been hesitant to criticize him so far this season, but um, that is 100% Jordan Pickford's fault. And I think that his aggressiveness, which sometimes is very helpful to Everton, got him in a world of hurt there. It was a little bit hard to tell from the replay uh, how much, if any, communication he was doing with Zuma. But what was clear was that Kurt was going to get there first, and he was going to get there before the attacker and Pickford. And all he has to do is just hoof that out of bounds to one side or the other, or just tap it back to Jordan and we're clean and fine. It's a, a very simple play that um, premier league defenders deal with probably what, six, seven times a game. Yeah. I, I, the only thing that I will say that is at all to the contrary, cause I, I generally in, in agreement with, uh, with Chris here. Uh, it, it is, Without a doubt, on a play like that, it is the goalkeeper's responsibility to be communicating what's going on, what he sees. Because obviously, Zuma, as the defender chasing that ball, is, is facing his own net. He can't be certain as to what's behind him. So Pickford, if if he's going to come, or even if he's not, not going to come and, and he's going to stay, he should be loudly communicating to Zuma and you know we've we've seen Pickford loudly communicate before I know he's got that in him you know that I'm coming or just hoof it do whatever the only scenario in which 
I would be willing to thrust any blame onto Zuma is, is if Pickford, you know, from the off there is coming and saying, I got it. I got it. I, I never saw an angle where it looked like that was the case. Um, but if the keeper as the, as the defender, if the keeper is coming and saying he's got it, you've got to give way there. Even if you think that you've got it, because if, if, if you don't exactly what's, what's going to happen is exactly what happened. Now, like I said, I, I didn't see any angle that suggested that Pickford uh, was necessarily as forceful in that as he should have been or could have been. So I, I put the blame on, on pick as well, but I do just want to uh, put that little caveat in there as well. No. Yeah. And, and I watching it um, over and over again, you know, you look at it and you're, you're like in some situations, a goalkeeper comes out, gets the ball because you realize the defender isn't going to get there or it's a one-on-one situation, and, and that's really the only move before the, the attacker gets the ball, and, and then, you know, it's a, a diff, even more difficult one-on-one situation. But in this specific situation, I mean, it was clear that Zuma was there, going to be able to get to the ball um, and, and at least be able to clear it or seal off the defender to clear it. And, and Pickford really needed to, like you said, say something if he was going to come out, and it felt like there was none of that, and we know he can do that, like you said, and, and it's, it, it was just, it is, it was, it was, a, it was a lot to watch, especially at that time in the game, and then what happened afterwards, uh, was even worse, but stay on Pickford for a second, you know, we, we made this mistake, and, and, you know, he's had a couple of times where we've questioned some of his decision making, whether it hurt us to not find this season? Um, I, I think that oh, it's a tough question because he's made definitely, it feels like, more mistakes. Um, I, I do wonder if the reality is that he's now, in the last you know two or three weeks, made two mistakes that feel like they cost us a, a game. Obviously, a, a, against Liverpool, that, that did. That cost the team a point. Um, in this one, uh, like I said, I, I think that the way that that matchup ultimately set up today, uh, I think if Tottenham doesn't score there, they're going to get one sooner rather than later. You don't put up a six spot on a team uh, in one world and in a world that's almost identical, put up zero. Uh, it's just not realistic. Um, well, do you think? Do you think that, you know, I mean – Obviously, again, it's six goals, so it's a lot of goals. They were going to score some goals. It wasn't like they were going to not score any. I just feel that uh, the the sequence of events that happened from the disallowed goal that quite literally should not have been disallowed. Uh, I was, you know, as we've mentioned before uh, already in this in this podcast, we've, we've said, you know, basically a blow, uh, blow like a a blow on the back, if anything. Um, and then on top, and then right shortly after that, you get the the fiasco that happened between Pickford and Zuma. And then shortly after that, you get the Ollie goal. It felt like just everything in that whole thing fell apart. And, and it's something that we've seen. And I said this in the in the Slack group chat. I feel like it's something we've seen against the top six more than once. A situation where we're playing well, things are going all right. You know, we have given up some some good chances, but nothing has gone in. We've played pretty well defensively. All of a sudden, something happens, and then everything falls apart. We give up two goals in a matter of a few minutes, and then all of a sudden, we're looking at a big deficit as opposed to, you know, a tie game or, or a lead like we had in this one. Yeah. So, 
Go ahead, Chris. I, I just had a couple of things on the Pickford situation. One that I wanted to mention before we got too far down the line was that um he was probably fairly fortunate not to receive some sort of discipline for the um pretty bad tackle on Deli Alley after an offside was called. I think he kind of got bailed out by the whistle, but he missed the ball completely and caught um Deli's legs with some of his studs. And the other thing, too, is just I, I wonder if he – the World Cup was – Obviously not harmful to Jordan Pickford, but just that he's trying to live up to that image that he found himself gaining over the summer. And he, as an aggressive player already, it just feels like if there is any, I think he's still a great player and I don't, you know, I don't want to overreact. It just feels like if there is any criticism that we can level at him, maybe he's just trying to do too much. Yeah. You know, and I think that. That's that's probably a, a fair criticism, and you know, for for the most part, most of this season, we've said, you know, it's it felt like he's had a, a pretty competent defense in front of him, so he doesn't need to be making those kind of plays where he's he's trying to play hero ball and and come out and and chase something like that. I I, I just want to reiterate that in in my mind, I, going back to what Gino said about how it it feels like in these sorts of games, the team crumbles a little bit when it's faced with adversity. And and I think you're right. I think at this point we've seen that enough that it, it's, it's probably a reasonable criticism, right? We saw it against, uh, against Arsenal was the one where it immediately comes to my mind where yes. they, they give up a goal that's, you know, that you're, you're really feeling pretty unlucky to have given up to Lacazette who scored, you know, an absolute worldie and the whole team fell apart and, you know, they were still well in the game. But they gave up another goal 90 seconds later because everybody was still, uh, you know, woe is me about having let a ball go in the back of the net. Um, and, and now you're down two and now you're really in trouble because Lord knows, you know, we've not been scoring consistently enough this season to be able to spot two to Arsenal. Uh, so I think while what happened with the Pickford and Zuma incident was bad and can't happen, cannot happen at this level, no doubt, uh, to, to me, the bigger concern is not that that incident happened, that at least one or maybe two players who are good players and we know are good players made a mistake is something that will happen. Um, it has happened more than it should maybe at this, at this club this season, but you know that mistakes happen. The fact that we are still now halfway through the season and we're still feeling like when that moment happens, uh, everything's going to fall apart. That's a huge problem. And, yeah. you know, we're, what are we at? We're actually at the exact halfway point. No, we will be after, after Burnley will be our, our last game of the, the first half of the season. And I mean, this team is in 11th right now. And the way that the last three weeks have gone, you can't really argue with that anymore. Um, so to me, there's a, there's a mentality thing. I think that, that has to be talked about. Or at, on what happens after that goal, just as it has been after other similar bad plays or just unlucky plays earlier in the season. Yeah, and and this is one of those things that we talk about when we ask, you know, just how far away are Everton from the top six? Is it is it missing a striker? Is it needing a bigger stadium or a better manager? Is it replacing Seamus Coleman? One of the biggest things is just 
they don't know how to deal with adversity. And I think that you saw today kind of your opposite number in Spurs. They went down and they didn't stop playing their game plan. And lo and behold, it worked. And Spurs are a good, um, a good sort of measuring stick for Everton in that a few years ago, uh, maybe more than a few years now, but they were in a similar position where they were kind of this, this laughing stock of the middle table and they, they ended up figuring it out. But, um, Everton have a long way to go. Yeah. And I think that that's the, the lesson of, of the last couple of weeks is that, you know, after, uh, before the, uh, the Liverpool match, I think we felt like, Hey, you know, we're, we, we might be there. We might be that, that place that we wanted to be. Um, and everything from that point has just absolutely fallen apart. Uh, and, and it, again, it doesn't feel like it's a lack of talent in regards to the other teams around us in the table. Obviously, Tottenham has more talent than Everton, and we knew that coming into the game. But when you look at the table and you see, you know, Wolves, Leicester, Bournemouth, and, and Watford ahead of Everton, in, who's now in the bottom half, do you really feel like any of those teams have more talent than Everton does? Because it, it doesn't feel like that's that's the case. No, and we're a couple of, really just a couple of days removed from being like, wow, Everton's top three midfielders, they're probably better than Arsenal's and Spurs. And wow, Lucas Dinia, he's one of the best fullbacks in the league. And those things are still true. Still absolutely true, 100%. Uh, and so, so again, that's and that's ultimately my point is that if if we're looking at a, a a group of players here that that we feel pretty confidently has that talent, and yet here we are, eleventh place, winless in five, and you know really threatening to have the wheels fall off in a way that might not be recoverable if the new Manchester United is is what we saw this weekend. Uh, you need to find some answers fast. Yeah, we're up to something like two points out of the last 16 or 18 available. And, yeah, two points uh, out of the last 15. 15, two yeah. Two points out of the last 15, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's not good enough. So, <laughs> and I was, just, I was just looking at our uh, schedule to see how things um, uh, how, how things have gone when we went behind. Um. And as far as I could tell, I think we've gained two or three points after going behind in matches. Uh, and, and, you know, these are against teams like, uh, I mean, we, again, then again, we haven't fallen behind too much, but still the, the inability to come from behind, even against teams like a Newcastle or a West Ham, West Ham, Watford, you know, you should, you know, despite being giving up goals in those games, we should be able to bounce back and realize that we have the ability to beat these teams and come back with full force and and beat them. Uh, And it's, you know, it's kind of disappointing to see that we currently don't have that. And that comes with, you know, obviously on the streak we're on, things haven't been going so well, so that confidence isn't there. Uh, But you'd like to see at least the mental fortitude, I guess you could say, uh, to be able to endorse and be able to put one in the back of the net. Yeah, and, and I think – go ahead, Chris. Sorry. I, I'm kind of to the point where when Everton go down either early or later in the middle of the game or what have you, I start thinking about doing something else with my time. Might turn on the Xbox yeah. or go 
fix some food. Like I just have zero confidence that they can turn around any sort of deficit. Um, and the, like you're mentioning, the proof is kind of in the pudding and I don't really know how to fix that because you, you have some pretty seasoned professionals and you, you know, there's guys like Seamus Coleman who have been here a long time and maybe he has that Everton stink on him in terms of the lack of confidence. But we now have players from Barcelona. Gilfie Sigurdsson is an international star and has done big things for his previous clubs. Um, and players like that. And, you know, Chink Tosun has scored in the Champions League a lot. Theo Walcott has been a major player for a big club. So it doesn't seem to, there doesn't seem to be any correlation between your previous history and what's happening now. So I, I just don't know what the next step to get that fixed is. Yeah. And the, the only, the, the last thing I think that uh, as, as we transition from what happened this week to, to what happens next week is that um, Everton's next three, six, seven, eight uh, league matches are against teams that are not not in the top top six. So teams that I think that we've kind of agreed here are, are ones that Everton has more more talent than. Uh, if if they go on a run against these teams and and pick up a lot of points, I, I think that we kind of forget that this match happened and it's something that we've talked about on here before that the difference in the past uh for Everton in terms of getting to the position to the table that it wants to be come season end it's not usually these matches against you know these uh, like we had today uh you want to be able to play at home and and get a point against Tottenham uh and and it's great if you can um but the discrepancy in talent between the top 6 and everyone else is 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 pretty pretty stark um, so when, when you're not getting those results against those big teams, you have to be able to do it against the smaller ones. Um, and that to me remains the mark of what this team really is as frustrating as today was as frustrating as, as what some of the other top six matches have been to me the the biggest proof about is this team going in the right direction is going to be what we see, you know, against Burnley, against Brighton, uh, because that's historically what's tripped us up the most. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great point. Um, Moving on to Burnley now, uh, talk a little bit about them, get through them, and then we'll move on to Brighton before we uh, wrap things up. Uh, Burnley, just how bad are Burnley? Uh, Just how bad is this team? Are, Are they possibly the worst in the league? Chris, we'll go to you on this one first. I know we've talked a lot about Fulham, um, and Fulham has been talked about a lot in general by various outlets. Um, I actually am going to say that Burnley are the worst team in the league. If you, you know, Fulham's defense has been widely panned as terrible, which is definitely true. But if you look at, um, expected goals conceded now, uh, Burnley are actually worse by several goals, which is just a remarkable feat. Um, the expected goals table tells us that Burnley should have conceded 36 goals by now and um guess what folks they've conceded 36 funny how that works out <laughs> um a lot of goals. I, I, I would say i just I, I, to, to if yeah. one second i just want to wrap that up like i look at fulham and i can squint and see oh yeah there's a nice piece or that's a talented player you know he's useful we can make something out of this i don't see that on burnley's roster at all Yes, and that is the exact distinction that I was actually just going to draw, so you beat me to it. 
I would say that Burnley is the least talented team in the Premier League. Um, I would say that what Fulham has managed to do uh, for most of this season has been so spectacularly bad that I might call them as a unit the worst team because somehow a, a team with Alexander Mitrovic and uh, and Andre Sherla and, and all of those guys has scored the same number of goals as Burnley, who, you know, has uh, Aaron Lennon and Sam Vokes and Ashley Barnes, I guess. Um, so to me, I think Fulham is worse just because they've got more attacking talent and they should be able to score a few more goals than they have. But yes, Burnley, to me, least talented team in the Premier League. And, and you say that now, and I'm interested in this next question now, now that you mentioned that, how far down the list of Everton players do you have to go to find someone who wouldn't be Burnley's best player? Adam, we'll start with you on this one. Uh, so this, this was a, a fun, uh, a fun game that Chris and I played earlier this week. And I, I don't know if we ever came to a conclusion as to exactly where we would draw that line. Um, you know, I, I think that, that what we said, uh, is that probably Burnley's best player is, is either Tarkowski or uh, or Nick Pope, right? So if it's yeah. uh, if you assume that's that's the the baseline. All right, so Everton players who are better than Tarkowski or Pope. Well, you figure you, you're going to take all three of Everton's center backs. You know, top choice center backs. I would take over Tarkowski. Yes. Yeah. Agreed. I'm with you. Dinya, um, yes. and Coleman. Yep. Yep. Uh, Pickford. So I'm up to six, right? Richarlison, um, Gilfie, two more mm-hmm. easy ones. Andre That's Gomez, eight. nine. nine. Uh, Drissa Gay is ten. Ten, definitely. Uh, Bernard and Theo Walcott, probably eleven probably. and twelve. You, you get up to ten pretty easily because you basically take. Everton's, you know, starting more or less, Everton's regular starting 11, uh, with the exception of the, the right back striker, or excuse me, right wing striker situation. Uh, and then, yeah, as, as Chris has said, you get into guys like Walcott and Bernard and, and Lookman and Dom and Tosun, who. I, I would definitely add Lookman, and I would even also mention that, um, if he's in a good mood and playing in a system that fits him, I think Morgan Schneiderlin would be better. Up- has so uh so you know the, the answer to the question is I think that, it's like, like 14 like said, 15 16 you can, you somewhere can there. get down definitely to at least 12 or 13 of everton's players who we think would be the most talented player at burnley were they to move move to burnley uh rip aaron lennon miss you buddy but <laughs> um and, and you could definitely make an argument to stretch that list you know 15 or, or 16 players deep. Yeah, I, I mean, I'd say it's a pretty pretty significantly long list, uh, considering that I, I think that when we have already talked about this, town level is is, uh, is, is a lot different uh, at Everton than it is at Burnley. But you mentioned Nick Pope, and, and the final thing I want to talk about with Burnley is their goalkeeping situation and their 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 infatuation with using Joe Hart over Nick Pope or Tom Heaton, two goalies who have done pretty well for them, um, you know, in the past and and really have uh, showed out for them. Why do you think 
that they keep doing this, Adam? Uh, well, I don't have a friggin' clue. <laughs> I just, I just don't know. You know, I know that, that Pope, uh, had, had been injured, um, and he's, he's, he's on his way back, but it just, Joe Hart has not been good for a while now. Is the probably, thing probably I would say three, four, five years somewhere in that range. Yeah. yeah. So, so the you know maybe as as we see Pope get more fit and maybe uh, Sean Dyche you know finally pulls the trigger on that. But as it stands now, the the idea that you know that that Joe Hart is genuinely you know a guy that this team wants to have in week in and week out is uh well it it is one decision that they could make especially since Heaton has been back for a while now uh I believe so yeah, so I um a couple of data notes on that for you it actually does look as if if transfer market is correct that Nick Pope is still hurt that does not explain uh the Tom Heaton absence um here's a a stat for you courtesy of the fine folks over at Statsbomb um, last season, so Joe Hart, these stats are up to date as of December 5th, which is a little while ago, but still relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, Joe Hart has a minus 2% goal saved above average. So basically the, the 0% there would be kind of your threshold for the average Premier League goalkeeper, meaning that Hart is worse than the average goalkeeper. Um, last season, Tom, last season, Tom Heaton was plus 9.8% and Nick Pope was plus 7.5%. Um, so it's not particularly close, especially when you think of, you know, a lot of these games, they're fine margins and, you know, one goal here, one goal there, that makes a big difference in terms of avoiding relegation. So I don't really know what they're doing there, but I hope they keep doing it for another week. Yeah, that would be nice. <laughs> yeah, that'd be really nice. But then again, we, we have our issues. Uh, um, but predictions, guys. Chris, we'll start with you. What do we see happen in this one? Do we beat one of those teams we should be beating or does the, trail of terrorizing games where that we don't want to watch continue. I I really don't want to pick Everton to do anything good right now just because I'm so sickened by their recent form that but as we just discussed with Burnley's talent level and the rate at which they've been shipping chances to other teams it almost feels like Everton could win this game on accident. <laughs> and so um, that, with that in mind, I'm going to go with 2 nothing. I just – I think this is a good opportunity to rotate, and hopefully um, Adam Lookman in particular is back from whatever issue he picked up in training over the during the week. But Burnley are just atrocious, and there's <sighs> – there's just no excuse. I mean, that's that's really the the long and the short of it. Uh, I, I like the the phrase uh, "win by accident" because I think that is absolutely what they're going to do. Um, you know, the the one thing that that we have not touched on here um, that we talked a little bit about last week is that this is a way for Everton. Most of the the matches that they've got coming up against these lower table teams um, are are away from Goodison Park. And that's really where the rubber meets the road for this group. Um, I think that they win uh, on on Boxing Day against Burnley 1-0 because Burnley uh, is a dumpster fire, although something about uh, people in glass uh, glass houses and stones, maybe if we're talking about teams that are dumpster fires right now. Um, but I, I think that just 
based on what Burnley can offer, it's not enough to, to get past Everton in this, even if it is at Burnley. Yeah, I agree. I think we're looking at, you know, I agree with Chris, 2 nothing. I think, and again, it, it's so hard to pick Everton. We, we feels like we do this every week. We're like, oh, this is a game we could win. This is a game we have a chance in. We should be winning this game. And then we come and never happens. But I think this is one where we, we can win and, and we can, you know, be semi confident about if we, if at all. Um, I think we should be winning this game easily. Uh, so two nothing's it for me, but moving on to Brighton, which is our last topic of today. What can we take from that first match against Brighton? Adam, we'll start with you. What is, what can we look at from that first match against Brighton and then take into this one? Uh, that we should make sure that we, uh, clean up our set piece defending, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Is, is a good place to start. No, I, you know, I think Brighton is a team that's going to remain pretty happy with where they're at at this point this season. You know, 13th place, they're sitting on, on 21 points and you know what they are going to be about. Um, they're going to sit a lot of guys behind the ball. They're, they're going to rely on Dunk and Duffy to be very large humans. Um, who are good at blocking shots, good at handling crosses. By the uh, way, um, just because you mentioned those two guys, I believe um, Lewis Dunk is suspended because he picked up a red card yesterday. Oh, and you know, Shane Duffy has just been on his way. I think this is Duffy's first game back from suspension. He had missed a couple as well. Um, I will check into that uh, as we continue here. Um, but yes, the, the point being that you, we know – what Burnley is, is going to be about. It's going to be about getting it, playing a deep line, making it difficult to, to be broken down. Um, and to look for Glenn Murray to get a half decent chance in the box at some point and put it away with his sneaky old guy swag. Uh, and Glenn, okay. Yeah. Glenn Murray is that guy in your pickup basketball league who is like 55, 60 years old, always just wears like a really sweaty white undershirt and just absolutely bangs at the off the glass Tim Duncan style um, bank shot. Whatever it is, it's it just works, but it's utterly inexplicable. Yeah. And he is, he, he remains, you know, a, a dangerous player. Um, and, you know, especially when we're talking about a team that's not, uh, had Pascal Gross as certainly as much as uh, it would like to this season because he's been fighting injury uh, all all the more that things fall on Glenn Murray, who did not start for Brighton uh, yesterday against Bournemouth. So you would suspect <laughs> that means uh, he's a little more likely to be be ready to play later in the week. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, with, with Brighton, the thing it's going to come down to is like, like in the first game, we have to figure out how to be creative and find creative ways to get past that, that low block, that, that line that, um, is going to be difficult to break down. It's a lot of the problems with a lot of teams that we face that are uh, lower in the table than us. Um, but hopefully we, we can do that. Um, Interestingly, um, I believe the last game at Brighton was uh, probably, or 
at home to Brighton was probably um, Richarlison's best game of the season. He had that brace, and I, if memory yeah. serves, at least one of the finishes was absolutely out of this world. And he kind of he started centrally, but usually drifted to one side or another and just absolutely abused um, Brighton's fullbacks. So that would be if Marco Silva is inclined to start Richarlison. I I, th- I think that I might rest Richarlison against Burnley and start him against Brighton. Yeah, and I think that that's um, one of the big questions that we haven't talked about yet with with both of these games. Obviously, you know, uh, Boxing Day is uh, Wednesday, and then they play again on on Saturday. So it is it's three games in seven days, and then another on New Year's Day. Uh, and I don't really know what Silva's next move in terms of rotation can be just because it doesn't feel like anything has been working. Um, so it's it's tough to get a sense of where he's going to head from here, both in terms of, well, we've got to get something working, but also we've got to get something working and use it in such a way that we can have something else that works ready in another three days. Yeah, I think just to quickly gloss over that, I think um, Ching Soon is an option. Mm-hmm. That Marco can go with against Burnley. I also, as we talked about, I think James McCarthy would be an interesting wrinkle. And, um, you know, those, those two guys that we haven't really seen a lot out of can find an opportunity to contribute. Um, you may, you probably even will see Gary Mina draw back in after the, yeah. the defensive performance yesterday. So I think there, there will be a couple of changes, um, coming up against Burnley. And just to answer the question that we raised before, yes, Shane Duffy uh, will be available by then. He served his third game, uh, a third of a three-game suspension uh, against Bournemouth. So he's back even for them on on Boxing Day. So he'll definitely be available come uh, uh, come this weekend. Sounds good. And, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how that rotation works. Um Interesting just with some of the players that we'll see be playing and, and how they can contribute over the, uh, over the, the, um, this, this festive fixtures, I guess you can call them. I think NBC Sports is calling them that. Um, but moving to Brighton here or moving back to Brighton here, have we, have they gotten any more out of their signings than, uh, since we last looked at them? Anything different from them, Chris? Yes and no. They've gotten a lot. More. They've started using them a lot more. Um, Ifez Basuma and Martin Montoya have um, really escalated their minutes totals. Uh, Leon Balagoon has had to play due to some defensive um, suspensions, but they haven't really gotten any production out of them. Um, in term, at least tangible production, no goals, no assists. Uh, the big attacking substitute, um, the big attacking signing. Pardon me, uh, Johan Bach from the Dutch league. He's currently injured and still has not scored this season. So it's been a, it's been a mixed bag for them and they're still kind of relying on a lot of the players who got them up from the championship a couple of years ago. Yeah. And, you know, last year their, their big player, uh, that, that kind of took everybody a little by surprise was, was Pascal Gross, um, who was missing for a lot of the, the first quarter. Um, of this season did not play uh, when Everton played Brighton earlier in the year. He's now got 10 games and 666 minutes in case you're superstitious. Um, But he's already 
in you know half or less of time that most of the other guys on this team have played, he's already second on the team in uh, in XG and fourth in uh, expected assists. So uh, again, kind of reiterating that point that although they've added some some new players, they are really still leaning on guys like Gross and Knockhart and and Murray who were the major forces behind keeping them uh, in the league last year. Yeah, and Adam, real quick, what is success, and Chris will go to you on this too, what does success for clubs like Brighton look like? Um, I think it probably looks a lot like about where they are right now. Um, you know, like I said, uh, when we opened the conversation about these guys, they're they're in 13th, they've got 21 points, they are nine points uh, out of the drop zone with four teams between them and 18th place. So they're not really in any danger. Um, they've they found a style that seems to suit them pretty well. Um, obviously, I think the concern for them going forward is uh, how reliant they still are on Glenn Murray, who I believe is approximately 850 years old, if I remember correctly. Um, so Glenn Methuselah Murray, little Bible yeah. joke there for you. <laughs> so they, I think that this season as it stands right now is something that they're going to feel pretty good about if they can kind of maintain that general form the rest of the way. Um, the challenge for Brighton is, is going to be finding new players to integrate, to help them move up the table um, in the coming seasons, especially as Glenn Murray ages. Um, the, the only other thing that I would say about them is that we've seen some teams like Brighton in the past uh, come into the Premier League and kind of become that mid-table fixture for a while. You know, teams like Stoke or like Newcastle was before uh, in their last iteration in the Premier League or Sunderland. And, and then sometimes those teams try to reach and and get outside themselves to move up in the Premier League and it, it backfires and, and puts them uh, into some trouble, kind of like we've seen with Burnley this year after they finished seventh. They've obviously gone in the wrong direction now. So I think that although Brighton will probably be pretty happy with where they are, I think that those cautionary tales uh, coming into this offseason, if they keep this general form, uh, is something that they're going to want to keep in mind. So I think that the baseline in answer to this question for clubs like this is to figure out a way to get in the Premier League and stay there for an extended period. And it looks like Brighton have done a good job of that and are going to continue to do that this year. But the other thing is, on a less tangible level, you want to provide for your fans just a, a sense of competitiveness to where you, you don't feel like like a Burnley or like a, a Fulham or a Huddersfield, you're going to get go into matches against teams like Everton or teams like um, Arsenal or whoever and get run off the field. And I think that Brighton have done that. And I've been a, much like the, pre, the previous iteration of Brighton in Bournemouth where they came up and immediately were pretty competitive and they've stayed that way. Brighton have proved that they belong. And I, I think that that's important just in from a kind of a theoretical sense. Yeah, and you know, and Brighton's results against the top six have been pretty good 
so far they you know they've only got one win but they did beat united early in the season when you know it was popular and everyone was beating united um but you know they lost to liverpool one nil they lost to city at city two nil lost to tottenham two to one um and then lost to chelsea two to one so obviously no wins there but like chris has said um it is that's better than us it it is now yeah um and it like he said it's it's a sense that oh you know, maybe we don't have the talent to come to, you know, go 90 minutes or necessarily nick more than maybe one result against those teams in this season. But it's a league that they belong in. There's definitely no sense when you watch Brighton play a team like that where you go, oh, God, you know, why are these two teams on the same field? The sort of feeling that you get sometimes when you watch those teams play Fulham or uh, or Huddersfield. And that's it's not nothing. It's it's a a major accomplishment uh, for a team that's that's not been up for a very long time to be at that stage where they can feel competitive against those bigger clubs. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and Brighton has been, you know, it, it, it's it's nice to see those teams come up and and do well. And uh, you know, obviously, we hope it's not against us as much, but. <laughs> Uh, we, we, it's nice to see them do well and, and really succeed at this level and, and show that they belong here. But guys, just to wrap things up, predictions, Chris, we'll start with you on this. So as we kind of just went over, Brighton are a fair bit better than Burnley and this is at Brighton. And I just don't trust that, um, on current form, Everton, this is the type of game that Everton can win. I'm going to say 1-1. I think that a lot of the things that we did in the first game will still be true here that the likes of Richarlison and, and those kind of guys can can really bully Brighton's defenders. But um, be it a set-piece goal or a Glenn Murray penalty or something, I, it'll just be one of those games we come out, come out of and just be really frustrated. I agree that we will also be frustrated, but I don't think we're going to take any points from this one. Um, I, I'm just – I'm not confident – in the group's uh, form at all right now. I'm certainly not confident in the away form. Um, and Brighton's tricky. And this is the sort of team that, especially at, at home, if you are wasteful or if you make mistakes at the back, and we've seen both of those from this team in the last couple of weeks, uh, they're going to make you pay for it. I think Glenn Murray gets the only goal, and I think uh, I think Brighton wins 1-0. I, what I will also add to that is that these predictions for Burnley and Brighton also are pretty dependent on the health of both Ghana and Gomez. Yeah, and obviously also just lineup decisions for both teams, which it's uh, it's difficult yeah, it's to project. You know, to to Burnley on Boxing Day, it's almost impossible to project uh, for for the Brighton game just because there's another game between us and and then uh, already. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think you guys are right. I think that this, this Brighton team ends up getting a, res, uh, a result against us. I think we get a point out of it. I think it's probably 1-1. Um, but another difficult one to watch as an Everton fan in a game where, while Brighton are good, still probably should be beating them. But guys, thanks for joining me as always. The fans out there, guys, listeners out there, um, keep listening. Keep following us on Twitter and we'll talk to you guys next week.